Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we are going to talk about why some victims are selected over others. So Scott, in your experience, what factors contribute to offenders seeking out specific victims? Yeah, good question. I mean, there's actually some pretty good research on this, basically, that we know some offenders will specifically uh, select certain victims because they perceive them to be vulnerable in some way, um, not credible, or not being able to report. So um, when we look at that research and we see that the risk of victimization is increased if the offender believes the victim won't be able to successfully or credibly tell anybody, that, you know, as we know, that risk goes up. Right. So the fact of, uh, if we look at the data of like who's most vulnerable, we know people with disabilities in general are more vulnerable than people without disabilities. And then if you start to slice the data and look at the Bureau of Justice Statistics data that kept pretty good data over like a five-year period over this, it's people with disabilities. And then among that group, it's women. And then among that group, it's individuals uh, with intellectual disabilities. So women with intellectual disabilities, uh, having another disability, so one or more disabilities, are the most vulnerable among that vulnerable population. But then we take it even further, people who uh, don't speak. Those are the ones who are going to be more likely to be selected as victims. And, uh, you know, the, the, as the research says this, there's a number of examples I've come across in my professional experience. So, for example, I had a case in Oregon a few years back, this is probably going back 20 years, um, it was a three-year-old who had autism and was being raped by her stepfather, and she didn't speak. And by the time she was seven, they finally started having her go to school. That's a whole other issue. And she started to speak. By age eight, she's talking like I'm talking right now and fully disclosed. And at trial, I remember the stepfather saying, I never thought she'd be able to tell anybody. So you have that, and then a couple years after that, or about a year after that, I had another case where the gentleman was 24 years old, intellectual disability, uh, autism, didn't speak, required assistance, and he had a caregiver who was about the same age, a male care, caregiver, and his responsibility was to drive this individual uh, with the uh, individual with intellectual disabilities, autism, doesn't speak, to his day program and back. And it was about a 30-minute drive. And one day, I guess he just decides they're going to pull over and jerk each other off. They're going to have this mutual masturbation party. And he feels bad about it. So he actually tells his pastor. And his pastor says, you, you, need, to, you need to report this. So I'm watching the interview with the detective. And the detective says, you know, why him? Why did you select him? And he says, well, because I knew he wouldn't be able to tell anybody. And then, like not too far after that, I have another case where it's this sixth grader with autism who doesn't speak. He needs assistance in the bathroom, not to go to the bathroom, just so he doesn't stick his hand and screw around with the water in there. And so an aide would go in with him. Well, the aide took it upon themselves to masturbate the sixth grader when he was in the toilet in the bathroom and somebody happened to see it. It was reported and I wasn't there for the interview, but you read the transcripts and you see in the transcripts why him? Because I knew he wouldn't be able to tell anybody. It was like almost verbatim. And I keep hearing this over and over and over again. 
So there, so there's research, of course, to support it, and then and the experience you're sharing too. Is certainly, the pattern. So it's it's an intentional choice picking victims who they don't think will be able to tell. So of course they'll get away with it, won't get in trouble, whatever their motivations are. It's hard to know completely. But I also like how you shared that in each of your examples, there was some sort of confession or admission that they chose the victim because they didn't think that they would ever tell. So it's it's really interesting how both, of course, in research and practice we see this. But I think it's also a really good lesson for us as multidisciplinary disciplinary teams to know the importance of even asking that question, because I think that would be very compelling for someone to hear, oh, yes, this person did choose this individual and they chose because of these reasons where they thought they wouldn't be able to tell or they thought they'd be able to get away with it. So that I think helps it maybe, I don't know, make sense to people a little bit more. Now that we know this information about offenders seeking victims or selecting victims because of their vulnerabilities, what do we do about it? Yeah, I think there's. I think we can focus on three things. So I would say prevention, investigation, and interview. PII. It stands for nothing. It's a terrible acronym. But uh, I think the idea is that recognizing that these individuals with disabilities who don't speak, and whether it's a, somebody who is an older adult with some underlying neuropathology like Alzheimer's or dementia, and they don't speak, or whether it's a child, un, you know. The, 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 with a disability who doesn't speak or an adolescent, it doesn't matter. Recognize that they may be more likely to be selected as, as a victim and then focus on prevention and uh, efforts. In terms of investigation, really conducting that thorough investigation, you know, asking the right questions, making sure that, the, you know, if there is an allegation, seeing these, this allegation, at least initially, is credible and, you know, not having this idea and you and I've talked about this before without deviating too much from the next eye the interview which I'll kick it to you for we talk about sometimes there's this perception of how could somebody do that right like the the victim is you know so vulnerable how could people do that right and you know people are just fucking terrible <laughs> sometimes in the things that uh they do and horrific in terms of you know the victims that we've seen are some of the most vulnerable people. I mean, shit, people rape people in comas or infants or, you know, it's so getting past this idea, if this is not your field and area, that this does happen. And it's that vulnerability is in part why they're selected as a victim. Well, and I think even for teams you know, that do this work every day, sometimes trying to wrap our head around something that we're not capable of is something that, that even it becomes a struggle because it's like, oh, how could that person do such a thing? And we just, we can't sort of let our brains go there because there's no way to really understand or comprehend it. So I, I think that it's important that we do recognize, just like you said, that it happens. It happens often. Um, and whether you're in this work or outside of this work, that thorough investigation piece is so important because we need to not have those biases about, oh, how could somebody do this? Right. Or it feels sort of unbelievable, even though truth is always stranger than fiction, yeah. it seems. There's no such thing as like so vulnerable they couldn't be a victim. Like anybody can be a victim. Right. And it should actually make us more concerned that they would be victimized based on experience. And then of course the research and what that tells us. The other story or, that you told earlier about the child who was raped when she was three and told later when she was like seven, that delayed disclosure piece is huge too. So it's like, okay, so she yeah. couldn't maybe talk at three and now she can at seven. So that believing victims 
go, you know, following through with that investigation, even though time has passed and that might make it more difficult. We see that all, all the time in lots of these kinds of cases, whether someone has a disability or not. So that like believing victims doing that thorough investigation, regardless of, you know, whether they could talk or not at the time that it happened or however they were able to communicate it to somebody. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's not up unless you're a prosecutor. It's not up to us, investigators, forensic interviewers, APS, CPS, whether a, a trial or a case will ever go to trial or not. However, we still can focus on getting useful, reliable information to make safety decisions on. And that's kind of where I would pivot back or I sort of deviated a little bit. I pivot back to that that investi- the interview piece. So we talked about prevention, investigation, now the interview piece. And as you know, of course, we have a protocol for, you know, our adapted protocol for how to interview somebody in the most legally defensible, reliable way uh, who doesn't speak. So I'll kick it to you and have some fun with it and, and I'll interrupt as appropriate or inappropriate. <laughs> so I think that, that the biggest <laughs> hurdle, right, is, okay, so not only do you have to investigate these thoroughly, part of that thorough investigation is doing an interview regardless of how the person communicates. And it's really our job as interviewers to make sure that we are adjusting to however that person communicates with us. And that doesn't always look like speaking in long sentences, doesn't, you know, maybe a few words, maybe gestures, even though it feels a lot more aligned with our traditional forensic interviewing protocols when we say, hey, tell me everything that happened, and then people are able to do that. Even if someone can't do that, doesn't mean they don't have anything to say. So our adapted protocol that we teach talks about how to ask those direct questions without being leading and suggestive, because we don't want to be leading and suggestive to anybody that we talk to. That's always going to be problematic. So how do we adapt to how that person communicates? Do they perhaps have a communication device? Do they use some sort of gestures to communicate? And is there a way that they could possibly answer yes, no style questions that we can, again, adapt without being leading and suggestive to gather some reliable information from them about what took place. Yeah. And I want to emphasize here is that the other piece in part of the training we come across is like, believe, at least try to interview these victims because, uh, you know, we've talked about this, I think, in other podcasts, certainly in our trainings about labeling somebody nonverbal, you know, is, is going to result in less likely somebody wanting to or attempting to interview them. So believing that you can, or at least attempt that you can, because there's going to be some people due to the nature and severity of their disability that you're not going to be able to uh, communicate with. But there's so many that we can. I mean, we, you and I know, you know, in our, our, our agency, our team has seen more and more, you know, mm-hmm. people who would have never been interviewed before who gesture thumbs up, thumbs down for yet, you know, thumbs up for yes, thumbs down for no, or communication devices or combination communication device, speaking a few words and gestures. That's what I found, I think, is more people sort of use different styles and adapting and being flexible in the interview and adjusting to whatever they need. And it's so interesting that you said that recently in a training, someone said they had attended one of our previous trainings, showed up for another one. And they said, oh my gosh, it's been so great. Our team has definitely tried to interview people that we never would have interviewed before attending the training. And I was like, that's why we do what we do. We want people to have an opportunity to tell their story. We want people to feel professionals, MDTs, to feel empowered, to give it a shot, to just try. And, you know, to be able to document that you did try, not always successful, but we are finding more and more that it really is uh, a great way to communicate with folks that they're able to share what's happened with them and uh, not just about their abuse, but about other things in their life. And then it sets them up for success in the future where they feel believed, they feel empowered. And those folks with disabilities, you know, can go moving forward with their life, having hopefully received some justice or at least being like your point earlier, put in a position where they're safe. 
Yeah, because otherwise, and there's data on this too, they're just going to be repeatedly victimized. So, well, that's why we do what we do, and that's why we did this uh, podcast. So hopefully this was useful for you in some way. Absolutely. So always try to interview victims um, and make sure that we give people the best shot to tell their story because that's what it's all about. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Stace. And thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.